As we approach God's Word together this morning on this glorious Palm Sunday morning, let's begin just by asking for His help in prayer. Would you pray with me? Sovereign God of heaven and earth, we come before you now with gratitude, uh, gratitude in our hearts, Father, for all you have given us. You just want to pause here and now to reflect upon your grace in our lives. Not only have you made us, Lord, but you have spent the blood of your Son, Jesus, the Christ, to ransom us from sin and death and seal us forever for your glory and joy. And we pray afresh this morning that, that your children, Lord, would grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would submit gladly to your truth. Guard us from error as we uh, lean into what you've written for us in your Holy Scriptures, Father. And we pray that you would bubble up from our souls joy as we walk with you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have been singing about Jesus' kingship so far this morning. You may remember singing just a moment ago, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem, the royal crown, and crown Him Lord of all. We sang also, His kingdom shall not fail. He rules over earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. Jesus indeed is King. King of kings and Lord of lords. And today, that's exactly what we're going to see in Scripture. Jesus' kingship on full display. We'll be breaking from our exposition and our study through the Gospel of Luke here on this Holy Week to focus just on the, the sacrificial death of Jesus, our King, for our salvation. And, and today on the events which this Blessed Week represents Palm Sunday. The event that we will be turning our attention to in just a moment throughout all four of the Gospels is truly a rare moment in Scriptures. It's one of those rare events that's recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to be more precise. Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. Why do I tell you that? It's just fun Bible trivia. No, this is a big deal because the gospel writers, each of them were writing for a particular purpose to a particular audience and they had to be selective. The Apostle John tells us that if we were to record everything that Jesus did and said, there wouldn't be books enough in the world to contain them. So these gospel writers are focusing on the life and ministry of Jesus and they are specifically narrowing down the fodder that's been given to them uh, to record that which the Holy Spirit leads them to, uh, to articulate as important and inspired to us. Here's my point. None of the four gospel writers were going to leave this moment out. The event we're turning our attention to this morning is mission critical. So what is it already? Is that, well, well, this climactic moment that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John all knew they needed to include in Jesus' gospel story is called the triumphal entry 
as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the day we now call Palm Sunday. And the way that Jesus does that makes it crystal clear that He is making an open proclamation to be the long-awaited Messiah, God's promised and anointed King. Because we see this high watermark in redemptive history, this triumphal entry in all four gospel accounts, rather than just pick one, what I thought we would do this morning is borrow from all four. And so if you're one of those note takers and you like to be tracking very, in a very linear way, what I'm going to do is just put these on the screen for you now, and you can see where we're going to be bouncing around from to put together a holistic piece, a holistic snapshot, if you will, of this glorious event in the life and ministry of Jesus where he claims to be king. So Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, John 12, we'll be pulling from each of them here this morning, uh, starting in Luke chapter 19. Uh, where we where we make a reference to one of those gospels, just to make sure that you're tracking and and not lost where we are in the scriptural text. Well, we've tried either to have a reference on the screen for you, or just the entire scripture verse, so you won't be lost flipping back and forth. Uh, Lord willing, that's a that's a blessing to you. Okay, well, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, always. And he has been telling his disciples up to this point in his life and public ministry that he's going to Jerusalem where he will die. Matter of fact, he even tells before it happens how he's going to die. He says, I'm going to be crucified. And then after three days, Jesus tells his disciples he will indeed rise again. Which is why Luke tells us in Luke 9.51 that Jesus had set his face resolutely, unswervingly, to go to Jerusalem to purchase our salvation there. And as Jesus is approaching the city, you're always going up to Jerusalem, high on a hill. He is coming up the backside of the Mount of Olives. It's a breathtaking view, really. Jerusalem sits above the Kidron Valley, but you can't see it coming this way until you get over the hill. We, we understand this as Pittsburghers. You know how when you're, you're driving into the city from our end, you've got to wait till you come through the tunnel and then boom, there it is. There's the city in all its glory. This is sort of like that. You can't see the city until you get over the back end of the Mount of Olives and then there before you lays the heartbeat of the people of God, the city of Jerusalem. It's a glorious sight. And as they're, they're coming up, before they can see the city in view, Jesus sends two of His disciples. I wish we knew which two, but we just get the number. Two of His disciples on a special mission ahead of Him into the city. Let's read about it together. Luke chapter 19. Verses 28 to 32. Borrowing again from what Mike just read. And what he, when he, being Jesus, said these things, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it. Bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those 
who were sent away, or those who were sent, excuse me, went away and found it just as he had told them. Now let's just pause for a moment. This is remarkable for a lot of reasons. For one, just imagine, if you can, what these two disciples must have been thinking. I'm really not sure what a modern day equivalent would have been for something like this. Maybe something like a carjacking. That's the best I can come up up with. Like someone's vehicle is sitting in their front yard, parked out in their driveway, and you presume just to go take it uh, and, and whisk it away. Which is why we see the objection come. The objection that follows right here in verses 33 and 34 of of Luke 19 as they were untying the colt its owners not just innocent bystanders the owners of the colt who happened to be right there say to them why are you doing this get your own ride why are you untying the colt and they say the Lord has need of it which is interesting I think that's enough that simple statement works Jesus had given them that line, again, verse 34 of Luke 19, the Lord has need of it. Why why does that simple explanation suffice for them to allow their precious beast of burden to just go off with these apparent strangers? Well, that word Lord here is the Greek term for kurios. And and kurios, Lord, has a wide range of meanings. It could have been used at that time just as a title of respect. Think of our English word, sir. Kurios could be used in that sense. Kurios could also mean ruler or master or even be applied to the king of the land. Caesar at the time was called Lord. He was called kurios. And also, that word kurios is used of Yahweh Himself. The King of kings, the Lord, the Kyrios of Kyrios, the Lord of lords. And, and given the context here, we know with relative certainty which one Jesus is referring to. Which, which sense is Lord being used? Well, you see, in this day, in the first century, it was understood that the king of the land could demand from anyone to use their resources or their property. And that was just one of the perks of kingship, right? It was a pretty sweet deal. You could demand, you could consign, say, the use of someone's donkey, and they had to willingly give it up. So the context is pretty clear here. The the word curios is invoked, and we know in what sense it's being used. But but Scripture is kind to us. The Lord's kind to us and removes beyond any shadow of the doubt what Jesus is talking to or, or the level of lordship that Jesus is invoking. Matthew's account of this same narrative tells us that this event took place to fulfill a critical Old Testament prophecy. A messianic prophecy about God's coming King. We find it in Matthew chapter 21, verses 4 and 5. Matthew, the tax collector, who we just read about last week, Jesus calling to Himself, Levi, Matthew, writes this under the inspiration of the the Holy Spirit. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, and then Levi quotes directly from Zechariah 9.9. You see what he's doing? 
He's reaching back into the Old Testament, finding an Old Testament prophecy about the the messianic king who's to come, the one there to wait for, and he applies it here to this moment in Jesus' life and ministry. Matthew continues, quoting from Zechariah 9.9, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. All right, full stop here. Do you understand what's happening? Do you understand what this donkey moment is all about? This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew is saying in no uncertain terms, ding, 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 the king is here. This is the one we've been waiting for for centuries. This is the one that Zechariah foretold of old. That's the big idea. The, The idea behind Palm Sunday, behind the triumphal entry, is kingship. So, With that firmly embedded in our brains, I think it's fun to pick up a a little aside as well. This isn't the entire point, but it's it's fun to make. Some of you may have picked up the little detail here about that colt. Matthew, or excuse me, Mark and Luke in their Gospels both emphasize the point that uh, no one has ever sat on this colt colt before. Mark 11.2. You will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. In other words, Jesus is riding, peacefully mind you, on a young colt that has never been broken. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have spent time around horses or donkeys or beasts of burden like this, but take it from a farm boy. This is not the way it typically happens. I mean, think about it. If someone was to sit on your back for the first time and just start directing you around by pulling on the corners of your mouth or wherever, what do you think you would do? Not comply calmly. This is amazing. It's like a secondary miracle all in its own that Jesus could come sit on this colt, this unbroken colt, and it goes exactly where He tells it to go. Now, some of you may be wondering, Why a donkey? I mean, come on, this is Jesus. This is the second person of the Trinity. He had his pick of the animal kingdom. Why Why a donkey? Well, it's important for us to know. Again, sometimes uh, just being so far removed from, uh, from the ancient Near East and the culture and, its, uh, and that societal norms, uh, it's important for us to understand that donkeys in this time were a symbol of peace. Does that help you grasp? Donkeys were a symbol of peace. In other words, Jesus did not ride into Jerusalem on a war horse. Jesus did not ride into Jerusalem on a glistening chariot. This king is coming to town just as the prophecy said, humbly, peacefully, on a donkey, not coming to serve, to be served rather, but coming to serve, coming to save and to redeem and to give his life as a peace offering for those he had come to save. So, what happens next? Well, we'll pick it up from Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 21. I'll be reading from verses 6 to 8. Matthew 21, 6 to 8. 
The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And He sat on them. That's the cloaks. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is when it's helpful to know another thing or two about how an Israelite would have been thinking and framing what was happening in that day. You see, everybody there in that moment would have known. They they would have implicitly understood that this was a way to declare or to usher a king into his kingdom. I'll give you one quick Biblical example, uh, when, when Jehu is anointed king in 2 Kings chapter 9, he's, he's, he's being anointed king of Israel and it's happening in a hurry, this is the response, 2 Kings 9.13, then in haste, every man of them took up his garment and put it under him, under Jehu, on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So you see, there's a precedent for this. The people recognize that their new king is riding into town. And so what do they do? Well, they throw out the first century version of the red carpet. They lay their garments down to make a runway, if you will, for his regal entrance into the capital city. Now, John... The Apostle gives us another interesting detail in his Gospel. He tells us what kinds of branches they used to do that. John 12.13 So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. What kind of branches? Palm branches, right. So, so at this point in time, I'd like us just to press the pause button and come up for air and ask a, a basic application question. How does this narrative apply to our lives in 2023? Well, here's at least one simple way I think that this could apply to us. It reminds us that as the people of God today, we should not major in the minors. We should not make the details of the biblical text into the destination themselves. We've all got a tendency to do that, both in faith and in life. We can, in Scripture, oftentimes, run across the story, run across the narrative, and we could fixate on something little, a detail, and all of a sudden that detail eclipses the entire entire point. Take, uh, for example, another account of Scripture. The one about Zacchaeus. You remember that uh, account when Jesus runs into Zacchaeus. What do you remember about that? Well, what most of us remember about Zacchaeus, right, is that he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Now, some of you who are really good might even go so far as to remember that he climbed up into a sycamore tree. Why is that even important? Well, it is important. It's in the biblical text, and there are things that we can gather from that account. But (laughs) surely, the point of Jesus 
intersecting paths with Zacchaeus and saving him is not that so we would know 2,000 years later that once upon a time there was a man and he was short and his name was Zacchaeus and he climbed up a tree. That's all we got. That's what most of us remember, right? We can, we can tend to at times major in the minors. I'm resisting the urge to, to go off on another tangent, another example of Noah and the flood, and how we can emphasize certain details of that narrative and miss the entire point. So here, here we are, Palm Sunday. What do most of us know about Palm Sunday? Well, we know that's the day that you go out to the Dollar Tree and you get plastic cheap palm branches and you wave them around and you lay the palm branches in the aisle. Why? I don't know. It's just what you do on Palm Sunday, right? That's what they, they did it for Jesus, so we're waving palm branches. And most of us, if we will confess, have no stinking clue what that even means. So here's my gentle pastoral encouragement to you. Don't major in the minors. This is Palm Sunday. And there's a reason why those palm branches were being waved. And we should talk about it. We're going to talk about it in a moment. But don't be so fixated on the blasted palm branches that you miss the point. And the point is not the palm branches. The point is kingship. The point is, the king is riding into town, and we are paying homage to him. That's exactly what's going on here in the palm branches, or with the palm branches. Think about your own lives. Is it perhaps possible that there are circumstances or situations that are very real to you right now, very front and center, but in the scheme of eternity, perhaps not so very weighty. You're having a hard time looking past this thing. It's become all-encompassing. And you're having a hard time laying this thing down at the feet of King Jesus and submitting and believing what the truth of Scripture says. Friend, let's not major in the minors. Let's not be so enthralled with the palm branches that we miss the king whose entry they are pointing to. Palm branches at the time, I've already kind of beat around the bush, I'll just hit it directly now. Palm branches were simply symbols of victory. They were symbols. It was what would happen? A king would come back from battle and they would lay down these palm branches as a statement. The king is victorious. And so, we should remember that too. Jesus, the one who rode into Jerusalem on that fateful day, is now still victorious. Seated at the hand of power at the right hand of the throne of God Most High. All authority, all power belongs to Him. And He deserves our expression of His allegiance, or of our allegiance to Him in the same way. By the way, let me just remind you, we're going to wave palm branches one more time. You know that? Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 12. Listen to this. Talking about the consummation 
of all things. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. We're talking about kingship now. There's a throne and, and every, the peoples from every tribe and language and nation are there before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, listen, with palm branches in their hands, with symbols of victory and authority in their hands. And they're crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne. See how many times the throne is mentioned here in this passage? And they worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Can't think of enough things to ascribe to Him. Be to our God forever and ever. They waved palm branches past tense when Jesus, the humble King, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey bringing peace. And we will yet again cry out, victory, all glory, all power, all allegiance be to the King of Kings. Waving palm branches in the consummation to come. Alright. At this point in the passage, the multitudes are pouring out to meet Jesus as He rides that colt down into the city from the Mount of Olives. And John tells us why. The Apostle John tells us this had something to do, the huge crowd, something to do with a little incident with a guy named Lazarus. Y'all remember that? John 12, 17 and 18. The crowd that had been with Him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Him from the dead, continued to bear witness. Wouldn't you? And the reason why the crowd went to meet Him was that they heard He had done this sign. I mean, just pause and take a breath and consider the human element here. They had just watched Him raise a guy from the dead. I mean, this, this is a very big deal. And, and this thing has started to reach a fever pitch. I mean, if, if this guy can raise people from the dead, imagine what else this king could do. Imagine the kind of army this guy could raise. Matthew tells us they formed a royal train. A loud one at that. Some walking behind. Some going before. Echoing His praises. Matthew 21, verse 9. And the crowds that went before Him and followed Him were shouting. What were they shouting? Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, again, we shouldn't miss the significance of what they were shouting. The point is not the symbols of the word, uh, or the syllables of the word Hosanna. You've got to know what that means. What, what are they saying? Well, they're quoting directly from Psalm 118. You see, the Jews at this time of year, this was Passover time. 
And every year at Passover, the Jews would recite this psalm, Psalm 118, on their way up to Jerusalem to the Passover feast. You know, the feast where the spotless lambs were to be slaughtered. Take a wild guess what time Jesus had chosen to make His appearance into the city to lay down His life. Oh, just so happens to be the time when the Passover lambs were being slaughtered. As He, the perfect, spotless Lamb, was preparing to lay His life down for the once-for-all sacrifice of His people. They're shouting like they would shout and sing every year on the way up to the Passover feast. Hosanna! Quoting from Psalm 118, calling, Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That word Hosanna simply means save. Save now. Save please. So when they were calling him Hosanna, they were calling for salvation. And he was... He was going to do that, wasn't he? They're calling him the son of David, which is just another way of saying Messiah, the Davidic king who had been promised. You see how this all connects? They're saying, Jesus, Psalm 118, this psalm that we sing every year as the Passover comes, is about you. They're saying, Jesus, You are the Messiah. You are the coming King we've been waiting for. Which is why the Pharisees among them and the religious leaders are outraged. And they're white hot. They see and hear what's happening. And they say, stop it. Stop that. Jesus, tell them to stop it. Luke 19, verses 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I hope you're seeing how big of a deal this is. This is Jesus' public declaration of His kingship. And Jesus says, when the Pharisees say, hey, stop them. Stop stop them from saying that. Stop them from calling you the Messiah. Stop them from calling you king. Jesus said, if they weren't doing it, the inanimate objects would come alive. The rocks would cry out if the people weren't. I like how the Bible Knowledge Commentary puts it. Writes, all history, all history had pointed toward this single spectacular event when the Messiah publicly presented Himself to the nation and God desired that this fact be acknowledged. And this passage is just dripping with kingship. Palm Sunday is about kingship. It's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah 9, 9. The king who's coming, riding humbly on the donkey. They're casting their cloaks and their palm branches before him, paving the way for his kingly entrance. They're declaring Psalm 118, saying, You're the Messiah. Hosanna, save us now. Save us, please. This is what Palm Sunday is all about. This is why we pause each year 
to consider the weight of this biblical moment. The question is, for them and for us here in 2023, what did they do with Jesus' kingship? And what will we do? What will we do with Jesus' kingship? Certainly, one simple point of application, simple and yet immensely important, incalculably important, is to say this. If you have not bowed your knee to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and confessed that He is the Son of God and the Son of Man, Now would be a really fantastic time to do that. This is not a Christian fairy tale. Jesus entered in to the epicenter of the city of God, into Jerusalem, and He was saying in no uncertain terms, I am the Messiah. And everybody knew it. Do you? Do you not just believe it, but have you ordered your event, the events in your life around that unshakable, unmistakable, undeniable reality of truth? You're here today. And thank you for coming. But you've not yet come to the place where you've surrendered your life to Jesus savingly, where you've said, Jesus, I believe. It breaks all my categories. But I believe that You are the Son of God. Come to ransom Your life, to give Your life for the sins of humanity that a holy and perfect God may look upon me and smile. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to... Bow your head and your heart and say, Jesus, though you are king, you came to sacrifice your life for my salvation. If you're here today and you want to take that step or, or, or you want to learn more about what it means that Jesus would claim to be king, I just want to, want to invite you to take that next step. My number's in the bulletin. The elders will be here after the service. We would love nothing more, nothing more than to talk with you about how to have a saving relationship with the Most High God through Jesus, His Son, and the King of all kings. That's the first application. Make sure you've done that. I think another thing that we could do in view of Jesus' kingship in our own lives is to look for what I will call dissonance. Look in your life for dissonance or for a lack of harmony, for, for tension between the truth of Jesus' regal, royal rulership and your current conduct. You see, it's entirely possible for us to give lip service to the King. It's entirely possible for us to come in here to Friendship Community Church on a Sunday morning and say, Crown him with many crowns. Bring out the royal diadem. Crown him king. To acknowledge him with our lips, Isaiah says, but with our hearts to be far from him. 
So let's take a moment and do this here before we leave. Let's, let's examine our lives and, and in our hearts and ask the question, is, is there any area in my life where Jesus claims kingship and I know, man, I know that's out of alignment. Not something particularly broken about you. It's a universal brokenness. It's a condition of fallen humanity to, to, to talk cheaply with our mouths and yet to fail to be there internally in our hearts. Which is why the very same crowd of people who publicly ushered Jesus, the King, into the city of Jerusalem with shouts of Hosanna, with shouts of salvation, are, are some of the same ones who that very, that very week, at the end of the week later, were crying, crucify Him. Crucify Him. How does that happen? How do you go from King, Messiah, to before the week is done. Yeah, we were just kidding about that. You should probably kill him. You see, they had their own ideas about what this kingdom should look like. And often like us, their ideas of what the king should do and how he should act are sometimes very different than our own. And when Jesus failed to deliver on their expectations, whoo, all bets were off. So I'm going to ask you again. And I'm going to, I'm going to leave just a, a quiet moment here for us to examine our hearts and lives. Are, are there areas in your life, Christian, where you have not submitted to the kingship of Jesus? Perhaps physically, areas of lust, perhaps practically, maybe you know that He's calling you to, to, to give Him your time, to give Him your heart, to serve Him with your gifts, and yet the, the, the busyness of life just rolls on, and here you are, another Sunday, maybe. Let's just pause in the quietness of this moment and recommit to Jesus' place on the throne of all and the throne of our hearts. If I pray one thing for you, Friendship Community Church, I've got a lot of things that I pray. But this is near the top of the list. That we as the people of God here at this little <laughs> pocket of southwestern Pennsylvania, that we would be a people who do this. Who realize, who recognize that Jesus is Lord. And we follow Him with whole hearts.
that we as the people of God would give ourselves in what I like to call wholehearted alignment. That's what I pray for you, Friendship Community Church. That's what I pray for my own distracted self. God, make us wholehearted as we pursue Jesus the King. Nothing before you. No idols before you. One day, Scripture makes it plain that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And we as followers of the King should have a lot of practice. Day in, day out. Week in, week out. Bowing down afresh. Confessing afresh. We've sinned. Lord, we've fallen short of Your glory. And we need You to be first in our lives. Lord, give us whole hearts. You're the King. We follow where You lead. So we're going to have a moment to, uh, to celebrate the salvation that our King came to purchase on our behalf. The, the table is here. Um, and we're going to close our service with communion. But before we do, I think we would be remiss not to, not to sing one more time and prime the pump as it were to get our hearts ready to, to celebrate communion together with this beautiful chorus before the throne of God above. Before His throne, He sits on a, on a throne. He's the King. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. Would you, would you pray and then we'll sing and then partake of the table together. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your authority in our lives, in the world, over the, all the created cosmos. Lord, You are curious. You are Lord. And we thank You that on that on that fateful day, you made it very plain. You, you wrapped all of biblical history up, riding on that donkey, symbolizing peace, symbolizing the victory that you would come to achieve for us by dying on the cross and rising from the grave. And we pray now, Lord, that we would be faithful as Your subjects, as Your servants, as Your sons and daughters. Teach us what it means in a society where me often comes first, where we don't understand kingship. Lord, help us to live quiet, joyful, submitted lives with You on the throne. Lord, help us to sing and mean it now about what it means to us for you to be on the throne. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.